The scripture passage for this morning is Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 16. That starts on page 1786 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to follow along. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us, then, who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Thanks, Sharon. Hey, everyone. Um... I need to do a couple preacher announcements, sorry, to take away a few of your trepidations and to make you aware of what's coming. Um, so we're having a healing conference, and then we're going to have an Advent series on Mary, so you think that we're becoming charismatic Catholics, but that's really not the case. Um, uh, the, the healing conference is, is not going to be focused on praying for people to receive miraculous healing. It's going to be focused on healing in the broadest possible sense. The gospel is itself a healing. There are numerous ways in which God heals us, and we're going to talk about how all of those fit together. The goal of the conference is to have the most holistic Christian understanding of healing that we possibly can. And then our series on Mary is partly because Mary is awesome. She is a major character in the New Testament. She is a revered among the saints, that is, the believers of God, and was used incredibly specially by God. And one of the ways to tell our Orthodox and Catholic friends they might have gone to excess in this is for us to honor her well as a character in the biblical narrative and in the history of salvation. And there's a lot to learn from Mary's life as a believer. So um, there's that. Okay, lastly, tonight there's going to be a vote in our congregational meeting on um, opening a position for a new associate pastor. Um, That's not the same thing as voting to bring in a candidate to be the associate pastor. Those are two separate things in our bylaws. So tonight what we'll vote on is, should we open a new position for an associate pastor? And then when we find such a candidate, then we will have another congregational meeting in which we'll vote on a particular candidate. Does that make sense? Okay, great. So just so you know what arguments to bring tonight. All right, but we'll be so just full of pie, probably we won't even get any conversation because everybody will be asleep, you know what I'm saying? All right. All right, let's try to dive in here. Um, one of the things I really don't like about myself that's true about me and every human I know is that for some reason, assurance is demotivating. Have you noticed that? That like when people have things, instead of those things motivating them, it tends to demotivate them. So when I was in, sco- when I was in school, coaches used to tell me if the most talented players 
worked as hard as the 70 percentile players, I'd win championships. Like the highest, most talented players are the least motivated to improve upon their skills such that they can be truly great, right? This is sometimes true in romance, right? Like early on, before you have the person, right? There's a lot of romance. You're caught up in the work of winning her um, or him. And then it just feels kind of like you get interested in other things, you know? And people are like, you know, there used to be such a spark and now it just doesn't happen, you know? And, or like, this is true of people who serve us, right? Like, I get more credit in my household for my sporadic cleaning of the kitchen than my wife's daily doing of the laundry. Why is that? Right? Because it's hard when somebody serves you very regularly, right? That's why we have to, like, literally have a day for Mother's Day, right? It's not just to, like, spend money on flowers and going out to eat so you can wait two hours just to have dinner, but it's about, like, the fact that we forget the people who serve us the most regularly, the most consistently for some reason, right? If this is true, like, have you, of, of, like, children of privilege, too, like, middle class and upper class kids, I can't tell you how many parents I've talked to over the years where they're like, my kid has everything, has always had everything. There's been neither want and there's been the present of, of luxury, and it, like, seems to have totally demotivated my kid and sent them into an existential personal crisis. Do you realize it's mostly in the West where people are wealthy and have plenty of health care that we have the highest suicide rates? Right? There's something about assurances that are demotivating for us as human beings for some reason rather than motivating. Worldly assurances or purportedly spiritual assurances, assurances believed in the wrong way tend to demotivate human beings, and that's really concerning for creatures that are only concerned about things that are concerning, right? And sometimes we think, well, maybe if we, like, believe in something, that's, that'll change everything, right? But the, the reality is, is that believing in something, like either a religion or an ideology, it doesn't in and of itself change it. Sometimes it makes it worse. In fact, usually it'll either make it better or make it worse. It usually makes it worse. Because when you believe in an ideology or, like, a big, a big view of things to try to make it work, what that'll usually do is a couple of things. One is sometimes it'll lead—what it does for most people in most eras, it leads them to what's called nominalism, which is basically to be something in name only. So I believe in something to give my life meaning and order, but then I'm really just that thing in name only, and then I do all the other stuff I normally would have done. So I take a little bit of emotional comfort from this thing I believe in, but I basically do what I want, right? The opposite of that is zealotry, taking this thing you believe in and making it abstract rather than personal, to the human beings around you in relationship to love and true interpersonal morality, but you abstract it, right, and you depersonalize it and objectify it, and then you fight for it to the death, right? Dang it, the new carpet in here is going to be orange. Because that's what happens when you mix Jesus' blood with the white of his purity with the something of something else, right? Or, like, things that really do sound like doctrines, or our political ideologies, or our— faith in our alma mater or football team, or like whatever it is that you like really believe in. Right? Hard work will function in a pinch. Right? The third thing it can produce when we believe in something, especially if it's true and good, and especially if it's the truth and the good in the Christ given by God, is that it can produce piety, which is a deep ordering affection towards the good that really guides you into something beautiful and to deal with all the problems that you're going to face and also to take the goods in your life and to find them motivating to see the assurances that have been given to you by God 
as something that can spur you on to press into what is good rather than that which demotivates you into not worrying about that so you can really pursue other things. And so one of the questions we have to face as Christians is, like, how do we avoid nominalism and zealotry and pursue piety? And you might think, well, Nick, isn't the answer to become a Christian? And the answer is yes and no. Because, I mean, only, only in the church could we possibly say, well, certainly, Nick, Christianity hasn't produced any nominalism or zealotry in the history of the world. Right? The fact is, is that nominalism and zealotry are human phenomenons. They exist everywhere where there's human beings in any kind of ideology at all, whether religious or otherwise. There will always be zealotry and nominalism in the Republican Party. Right? There will always be zealotry and nominalism in the Democratic Party. There will always be zealotry and nominalism in trade unions and in entrepreneurship groups and in PTA meetings and in everything faculty lounges and families, right? Now, in some ways you might think, okay, Nick, nomal like nominalism and zealotry are like total opposites, right? And they're like, yes, on one vector. In terms of like how intensely you believe in the thing and fight for it, they're opposites. Nominalists will not fight for it. It's a name only, man, right? So they are opposites in terms of passion. Zealotry is closer to piety and passion. Right? But what Scripture teaches is that zealotry and nominalism are actually very similar. They're very similar, actually, in their dishonesty. Both of them are evasions. They're evasions from actually facing the truth, being personally and experientially in the presence of God, allowing your soul to be seen, judged, formed, remade, and going through the horrifically painful process and embarrassment of repentance and recognition of weakness and facing the truth and choosing the right and having the courage to speak the truth to others when they want you to be complicit in a lie and all of the difficulty of living your life before the gaze of God honestly, even with all of his affirmations and assurances. It's still terrifying and most humans will do anything to avoid it and either zealotry or nominalism will do if they will help us maintain the fundamental dishonesty of what Scripture calls the flesh. And so this whole passage in Philippians 3 is about how, as Christian believers, we can not be believers in the ideology or religion of Christianity who really aren't pious. Like the language in here, Paul says, all, this things, all these things Jesus has done for me, they make me want to press in more. I want to experience it more. I want to be with Jesus more. Everything that's happened to me, it doesn't make me lazy, and it doesn't make me want to kill other people. It makes me want Jesus and to learn the life of love and to walk in his suffering and then somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. And he's like, that is Christian maturity. Right? The word— um, it says, attain my goal in the new NIV. That used to be translated perfection because that's actually a more literal translation of the word. The word mature is also the same word. In Greek, it's usually translated perfect, mature, or complete. He says, I don't, I don't say I've already been made perfect. But he says, I press on to take hold of Jesus. And he says, you, you guys, all of us who are perfect, that is truly mature, should look at Christian faith this way as essentially a relational assurance of the meaningfulness 
of the pursuit. Now, what we should take from this passage is this. True salvation, the real assurance of God, when we believe in the assuring doctrines of faith in the right way, it produces or motivates piety, like a real passion for, to pursue God and to press in. Right? And if it doesn't, then what we need to realize is we're not believing it right. Okay? The two doctrines that are most powerful in leading us towards piety or real passion to press in, but also have the most capacity to lead us to nominalism and zealotry that are in the doctrine of salvation is justification and glorification. Okay? You'll notice in the, in Philippians 3, there is the death of Christ, his cross, and his resurrection, right? And they symbolize the cross setting us right with God, i.e. justification, that faith in Jesus sets us right with God because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You can sit here right now in a state of faith in Jesus Christ and be before God entirely forgiven and reconciled and justified and in a state of, in his view, righteousness, full innocence and approval. That is a fundamental doctrine of Christian faith. It was purchased by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It can belong to any human being by faith alone and by confession of that faith, right? And you can be justified. Faith in Jesus sets you right with God. And glorification. After death, the resurrected Christ will resurrect those who are his own to glory. And in that glory, we will live forever. We'll be free of death, but we will also live in moral beauty. We will be free from sin. We will be exactly who we want to be and who God made us to be, right? Now, those two doctrines, this apostle who is in prison and lost everything in the natural world, except not his life at that point yet, but he will later, he said those two truths come together for him and are a fountain of motivation. And he, they lead him not towards nominalism, because everything's already done, and not towards zealotry, because I'm going to get you if you don't believe it, but towards piety, towards real passion to know God and to press into what that means. And just something like what, what the, our Catholic friends and the mystics of the faith have called the mystery of Christ. What does it literally mean to pursue God, to have a relationship with him when he is a spirit that you can't grab hold of and can't, like, text? Right? It's a difficult— it's a difficult thing. It's, a, in that sense, a mystery. And I, I didn't get that from the Roman Catholics or the Orthodox. It's in the Bible, the mystery of Christ, which is sp spoken about in Colossians and in Ephesians. Now, if worldly assurances demotivate, demotivate piety, we need to recognize—well, let me find out where I am here. I think that—okay, so here's, here's how this is going to work, you guys, because I think Haley took the one off of this. this I'm going to have two points, and my second point is going to have three points, and they say in preaching school, you're never supposed to do that. All right? I'm going to tell you right now. So Haley saved me by taking the points, numbers off the first points, so you don't realize that, because she's a sweet person, okay? But I think this is my first point, okay? So worldly assurance demotivates piety. Okay, you need to understand that. If you— believe in a worldly, that is, a assurance that is not rooted in God, what he has spoken and shown about himself, what he's done in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and how that integrates with his union with us through the presence of the Holy Spirit, right? If it's not rooted in the fullness of that, it will ultimately be somehow disconnected from God's greater purpose, and it will be what you might call a worldly assurance. What that means is, is a worldly assurance is an assurance you can believe in, 
and still pursue the world on the basis of the flesh. Okay, the flesh in the Bible is the, the drives of our passions and desires that are not rooted in and clarified in what it means to bear the image of God in salvation, ordered towards Jesus, right? So all of our desires that lead to sin, things that produce temptation, the stuff that's not the way it's supposed to be inside of us, but that like it wants and desires, its sensuality and its sensibility wants to go in a direction that doesn't honor the Lord. And it can find that in the part of our culture that is not ordered to Jesus, which the Bible calls the world. So worldly assurance can be, can be a religious assurance. It can even be a Christian assurance that we believe in in a certain kind of way that still allows us to pursue the world on the basis of the flesh. You can come to church every week. You can believe in Jesus. You can even read your Bible regularly. You can have a, a pretty meaningful spiritual life. And you can think that you have piety. You really believe. But, you, but if in the way you believe, you are free to pursue the world on the basis of the flesh, you're nominal. You don't believe. Because when you believe in the Christ, and you're drawn into the presence of God, and you are one with Jesus, and you're pursuing him, and you want to know the righteousness that you've received, you can't do that anymore. It leads to repentance and faith. And so whenever we believe in an assurance that allows us to pursue the world on the basis of the flesh, we're nominal, or we may evolve into zealotry. Notice the way Paul says it here. He says, and this is from the passage that Devin read last week. He says, he says, I, I have often told you now, before now, and say it again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Okay, earthly things there is, is the New Testament concept of worldliness. And when he says, he says that their God is their stomach, do you see what that means? What he's saying is he's saying that they're not actually believing in the God that is, who reorders the soul, heart, and mind towards himself, but instead in the flesh, which is the metonymy of the flesh, what stands for the whole of the fleshness, he just calls it the stomach. That is, whatever we're urged to do from the inside, we just do. I want to eat something. I just go eat something. I want to play video games longer. I just go play video games longer. I want to, I want to yell because I'm being attacked. I just yell. Right? All, he calls it, he calls it the stomach right? Like the bowels, where emotion and desire comes from, out of a deeper place that you don't know, but it's not a higher place. Does that make sense? And he said, when, when we obey that, our God is our stomach, that is the flesh, and our mind is on earthly things, that is, we're thinking in an utterly worldly way. That's why we allow ourselves to pursue the flesh in that matter. Does that make sense? It's kind of like, you know that urge to like pull out your phone like 2,000 times a day? Do you realize that people, the average person, pulls their phone out of their pocket more than a thousand times a day, right? Maybe that's a factor of 10 higher. Maybe it's like 200, but it's a lot. <laughs> it's like, whoa, that's out of hand. It's like, don't you get a carpal tunnel from pulling their phone out of their pocket? Okay, you know that urge? That just little urge, that tick, it's like a, it feels like a tick almost. That's the stomach in this context. It's like that, just like, you're not even paying attention to the fact that you aren't governing your nervous system but the most immediate, most subtle urges of your nervous system to just please yourself are governing you. And what that means, you as a human being have shrunk so small that your being is smaller than your smallest neurological urges, which means you're losing yourself, right? Your technology and food and calories and sugar and alcohol and whatever is becoming yourself. You just feed that tiny self, and the part of you that's like mind, soul, being— 
the part that bears the image of God is shrinking to nothing. That's damnation. That's what leads to damnation. You no longer have the capacity to be a human being. And it, it's not stolen from us like somebody comes into your house and takes your refrigerator. Right? It's, it's, it's taken from us by giving away a little bit at a time. By exhaling out a little liquid but never drinking any water until you dehydrate to death. That's what it's like. Where's my clicker? Do you know what pocket it's in? I think it's in this one. Okay. And so when Paul says this in the following verses from our passage today, he's not just referring to people like Greco-Romans. He's saying people who we think of as Christians. That's why he's saying, look, pay attention to my life and Timothy's life and Epaphras' life. These people that are like honored elders among you who are believers of true piety because you can't just pay attention to everyone because even some of your leaders really aren't believers. Like their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame and their, and their mind is on earthly things. Okay, we gotta keep moving. How does this happen? I've already said like nine times, but I'm gonna say it again because this is really important, okay? There's a way of believing that frees you from pursuing the flesh in the world and there's a kind that frees you from the pursuit of them, right? There's, there's one way of believing in Jesus that takes care of your fear of death and takes care of your sense of justification so that you can really focus on your career and getting money and doing what you want. And there's a way of believing in Jesus that frees you from the flesh and the world so that you can press into Christ. Which may mean that you work harder in your career, but that's not the purpose of it. Or certainly not the depth of it, right? Because what happens is, is both of these doctrines, justification and glorification, end up being misused, right? You see, so, sometimes people believe that the, that the misuse of doctrine is heresy. That if I say, Jesus didn't die for your sins freely out of grace, you have to work for your salvation. You have to work really, really hard. And if you work hard enough, Jesus will cover the rest of the balance with his graciousness because he died for your sins. And he can take from that store of grace and give you a little bit of it if you really need it, right? That's heresy. That's just wrong. That's the opposite of what scripture says. And you could be like, okay, that's what happens when doctrine goes wrong. No! Yes, heresy is bad. Heresy is definitely bad. Where it exists, we're going to need to refute it. However, the flesh is way more subtle than that. So is the devil, and so is the world. It says, you keep your belief. We're just going to castrate it. So it has no fertility in your life. It can't actually do anything, and it will die out in this generation. That's how it works. And so what happens is justification gets misused to be this thing where Jesus died for my moral reconciliation with God, therefore my moral growth is irrelevant to my spirituality. My moral obligation is affirming doctrine and maybe legalism, right? So that's where you get churches where everybody's mean to each other, but they will like, if you don't read their version of the Bible, or if they, they, you don't say, you don't talk about salvation in this way, or if you say that people should pursue holiness, or if they should, like whatever you say, or like you've got to speak in tongues to be really filled with the Spirit, like they will fight to the death. They will split a church and organize a whole nother church for that doctrine, right? And no kid wants to go to church when they're an adult who grew up there. You understand? And it's because people think, well, Jesus performed perfectly for me morally. And so what I just have, I just have to tell people. I've heard, literally heard people say, Christianity is, you found, like you were beggar finding bread, right? And you found the grace of God. And like all that's left to do is for you to tell other people because everything's already been done for you. Which is like deceptively true and completely false. 
It, it is true that we, the main work we have left to do is to lead other people to faith. I mean, John Wesley was the one who said, you have nothing to do but save souls. Wesley was also the one that championed the doctrine of sanctification, which was basically, you have nothing to do but grow in holiness. Turns out, people who press into Jesus because they want to experience his righteousness and experience his resurrection, and that fills their soul with true piety, turns out they end up talking about Jesus with people they care about. And they care about more than the people who can immediately get them stuff in their fleshly pursuit of the world. So they end up running into people and caring about people who need Jesus. And because of that, then they speak about Jesus. And guess what happens? People hear about Jesus and get saved. And they don't get saved in the zealotry, nominal way. I mean, do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, listen, you guys, you will literally get on a boat and you will travel to the ends of the earth to make a convert. Then what does he say right after that? so that you can make them twice the son of hell that you are. That's what our Savior said. Now, albeit in his most aggressive chapter of the Gospels, but that's what he said. This can also be done of glorification. If Jesus rose so that I would rise, so I don't need to worry about my mortality or continued presence of indwelling sin, he'll take care of all that later. Like, in Jonathan Edwards' like 74 resolutions or whatever the heck they were, there's like eight or nine where he says, listen, I'm going to think every day or at least every week about what I will want to have been the case in my life when I die. Because every week I'm going to think about the fact that I'm going to die. And what kind of life will I have wanted to live when I come to death? And I'm going to let that guide my life. You see, that's, that's a good way to think about the resurrection and death. Right? You see, for, for Edwards, he was believing in the resurrection such that he believed that he would surpass death. So he didn't have to say, I'm going to die, so I need to get all the toys I can get. I need to sleep with all the women I can sleep with. I need to tell off all the people who need to be told off on the internet or in my personal life. I need to get all that done because someday I'm going to die and go to be with Jesus. No, he was like, listen, the only thing I have any control over, the main significance of my life when I come to death, is how I have lived. And have I lived unto Christ, in the beauty of Christ, to the ends of Christ, have I known him in such a way as to understand to be transformed by him in his death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead? See, Edward saw it as fundamentally creating significance for his present life. Some people are like, listen, I have all these sins. Yeah, they're probably bad. They're not really ruining my life. I don't think that they're that big a deal. I certainly don't want to be one of those people who take religion too seriously. And I don't want to like constantly be beating up on myself because I just don't think that's very productive. And I know, listen, when I die and I rise from the dead in glorification, God's going to take away all of my sin. He's going to take away all of my inclinations, and I will be morally perfected. So whatever doesn't get done between now and then will be inconsequentially in that. Like, who wants to gut the house? Who wants to, like, redo a house to put it on the market when you know the buyer's going to gut it? Who wants to do that work? Right? And listen, a lot of us feel that way about sanctification, growth, and holiness. We think— Look, God's going to like totally remake us nearly from scratch in the resurrection. So if I never get over any of this stuff, it's okay. Which is true and false. You see, this is another one of those situations where you have to hold two thoughts in our head at the same time. I know it's difficult. It's almost like juggling. Right? But like, is it okay if you ne never get over some of these faults? Yes, actually. There are some brokennesses that will sometimes— motivate strongly us not acting in true holiness, that we will not actually heal in this life. We might make progress. We may grow. We will, if we're believers, fight it all the way. But we may not overcome them. 
And I think a good example of that is like physiologically rooted mental illness. If you're sitting here and you're taking your schizophrenia medicine, good for you, like, and you're like, Nick, I'm like, yes. Like, there are some things literally that won't be healed. And for some of us, it's like trauma and trauma-based insecurities and stuff that like we've tried to heal, we're trying to grow. But like, we know some of our snappiness and some of this and some of our spending money on that when I shouldn't have is rooted in like these major wounds that we just don't know how to heal. Are you going to go to hell if that's not—if that—you don't, like, heal that tomorrow? Is that why we need the healing conference? No. No. But did somebody pursuing Jesus, the healer, the doctor who has come for anybody who admits that they're sick, will we continually come to him for whatever healing we can find, whatever strength that we can pursue, whatever story he takes us through, and however he changes or mediates or integrates the things that have hurt us and the problems that we do have? And the answer is yes. We will always be traveling with Jesus in and with our sins and wounds, seeking whatever grace we can receive in the presence, whatever triumph over it we might see in this life. Always! Because, because we want in that somehow to find the resurrection from the dead. Remember, he says it's in the transformational dying that somehow I will be surprised to find myself raised from the dead. Okay, gotta keep moving. The false believing of the greatest doctrines of Christian faith that are the greatest works of Jesus Christ is the reason why our faith, especially in the last 200 years, was so, so, so sternly and aggressively critiqued by both secular and Christian critics. I mean, Nietzsche and Marx, which are very similar to the ones that are happening right now in Madison. Okay, there's very little difference. Like, these things are not renewed very often, okay? <clears throat> the attacks against Christian faith today, as well as the attacks in the 1800s, the Romantic period, were that Christians, especially in Protestantism, had so disconnected the pursuit of godliness or behaving differently because of God from being set right with God and ultimately having resurrection, that the setting right with God and the getting resurrection were cut off from the pursuit of the imitation of Christ and dying and living with Christ in the midst, that Christians were not pursuing moral greatness. And because we weren't producing, like Peter Kreef said recently, the religion that will win is the one that produces the most saints. And that's a fair competition. Truly holy, loving, humble, courageous people. And listen, if in America, if in Madison, secularism produces more saints, it wins. And it deserves to win. And if we produce more saints, we will win. And not win in the zealotry sense. We're going to get them. Win in the win over hearts and minds for people who weren't in need to gladly become our friends. Just as if not, your children and mine will be won over by them and will gladly become their friends. But this is true also in the Christians. Dostoevsky's and Kierkegaard's, both very devout and pious Christians, critiqued the church in Russia and in Europe for the same reasons. Kierkegaard was attacking Lutheranism and its objectification of the doctrine of justification and what it did to the Dutch people and how they believed in the doctrine. One of the things that doesn't get made explicit throughout the Bible but is present everywhere is that grace, that is the free gift of God, 
is meant to have an effect on us. And if we honestly interact with it, it will have an effect on us. So for example, in John 3, there's this place where Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Right? And he says, because I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. Right? But so that people could be saved by believing God's one only Son. And then it says this, Anybody who doesn't believe in him is already condemned because they didn't believe in God's one and only Son. Okay? That sounds a little abrupt, right? You're like, oh, it's, the, it's my favorite Bible passage. God loves the world. We can all be saved. This is so fantastic. And he's like, look, if you don't believe, you're condemned right now. And you're like, for, how is not believing in Jesus a sufficient sin for condemnation? Right? And the answer is, because the death and resurrection of Jesus, the whole life of Jesus, all things considered, is the most gracious thing ever offered to mean people. Okay? And if in our state of meanness, anger, abuse, somebody, instead of giving us exactly what we deserve to change us, gives us the opposite of what we deserve, offers us kindness. That is the most morally critical moment that could possibly exist in, in a being's life. Because if you see the grace, the gift that that is, it can melt a heart of stone. Literally melt a heart of stone. You can become a completely different person. But if you don't, it could freeze you forever. It could freeze you in that hardened state because in the most gracious moment, you couldn't be changed. You see, in Christian faith, there's this idea that like God can give his graciousness. And if it doesn't do anything to us, or if we choose to use it rather than it affect us, it will have a damning effect rather than a redeeming effect. That is, that the work of Jesus is so good that it will either save or damn anybody who comes in contact with its reality. Now, I'm not saying that absolutely anybody who ever hears about Jesus or say, are saved or damned on the basis of that one hearing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if in reality, spiritually, you come in contact with the reality of the grace of Jesus Christ— it is so good a thing, it will either save or damn you. But if it damns you, it also is possible that you can get broken down further by suffering, and maybe at a later point, it will save you rather than damn you. But it has that moral effect. And so what, what that means is that all of us have one of two relationships to grace. One is we either have a predatory relationship to grace, which is like, I'm going to suck this thing dry. It's an open spigot. Let's just get more buckets, man. And we'll take, and we'll take, and we'll take, and we'll take, and we'll take. And when the person says, I feel like you're abusing the good way I'm treating you, we say to them, at least I'm not the sucker. Right? Right? It's like the dad who can see that in the new boyfriend. She's like, he's like, sweetie, listen. He's the kind of guy you can love for 70 years, and he'll never give you a thing that you're really looking for. You can be gracious and gracious. And there, there's, there, there's another guy out there that's just as mean as him or just as unformed as him, just as big an idiot as him, his, his age. And you could bet on his trajectory because if you're gracious to him, he will respond and he'll change over time. There are men like that. And this isn't one of them. You understand? The question is, what kind of person are you? The other is transformational, right? It's that by receiving, like, the water that is rain, it doesn't just— have you ever seen those, like, Zen gardens with, like, the sand and the rocks and stuff? They're, like, really well-ordered, right? 
You see, you can still ran that thing for 100 years, and it's not going to grow anything. It's really well ordered. It's really well thought through. It might, like, help you relax, especially if you take some Valium while you're there. But it— <clears throat> and it has its own purpose. But life is not one of those purposes. It's like when Jesus says, look, you can throw seed on the path or on the rocky ground, and it's not going to grow. But if it falls on good soil, it does grow. And it produces like 30, 50, 100 times what you planted in the first place. Like something happens. You see, salvation is what happens when grace changes you when you come in contact with it. Right? And so one of the things we have, always have to ask ourselves is, what's ha- what happens to us when we interact with grace? Does it make us angry? Does it make us feel guilty because we know we're not doing something we're supposed to? You have a predatory relationship to grace. Be- why? Because you realize that grace does produce obligations, right? That's why we have Thanksgiving this week, right? The most fundamental obligation when somebody does something for you is what? Acknowledgement. It's the most fundamental obligation. Somebody does something for you, you say thank you. We teach our kids that when they're like, they can barely say the, and we're like, say thank you. And that's right. That's correct parenting. Say thank you. Say thank you. Right? Why? Because it's the most fundamental human reality in relationship to grace. Somebody did something for you, you say thank you. You acknowledge it. Right? And so what happens when we receive grace and we get annoyed by it? It's because we realize that all grace produces an obligation to us, and we don't want to give back that obligation freely. That's why some people who don't really love their significant other get so angry when they make ovations of care towards them, and they punish them for it emotionally, because they know that all that love actually obligates them to acknowledge it, to be loving, to be a decent human being towards them, and they're so angry about it, and they make them pay. Even when, three days later in a fight, he said, why don't you ever love me? Why don't you ever put something nice on? Why don't you ever, like, snuggle up to me when we're watching something and actually touch me? But when she actually does it, he says something snide. Why? Because he wants to obligate her, but he doesn't want to be obligated himself because grace is obligating. Right? Okay. We're halfway through. Gospel assurance, when we believe these things biblically, they are incredibly empowering towards piety. Right? He's, Paul, the apostle says twice, he, he says, not already, but I press on. Right? He says, I haven't already obtained it all. I haven't already been made perfect, but I press on. I haven't taken hold of it, but I'm pressing in to take hold of it. I'm straining towards it. I'm pressing towards the goal to win the prize. Do you see that language? That, that pressing on, pressing in language, okay? Now, some people will say, what that means is we should all sing for like an hour and 72 minutes, turn the lights down as low as possible, close our eyes, and wait to hear God's voice in our heart, because that's what it means to be close to Jesus and to hear Jesus and to be with Jesus and to seek Jesus. To like hear God's voice in our hearts, and that's what it means. That's, now listen, I'm not saying that isn't anything of what it means. But it's not what Paul means here. What Paul means here is losing everything that he owns, getting thrown in jail, (laughs) loving people who are doing things for the wrong reasons, telling people the truth, talking to soldiers in the household of the people who might later cut off his head. 
And being with Jesus in all of these circumstances, he can't control. Only what he does, he can control. Only what he feels. And he's interacting with these in this like strange mystery of Christ being with him, but seeming like he's nowhere. But like walking through this strange story, he doesn't know where it's going. But he's trying to participate in the righteousness that he's received. And he knows he's going to find his way to the glorification that he longs for. And that is called pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus took hold of me. And it's not inherently mystical. Now, maybe you're mystically gifted. Maybe you literally do hear God's voice in your heart when you pray. Maybe when we have worship nights, God gives you like prophetic words or like you have intuitional things into certain— that's fantastic. And there are spiritual gifts talked about in the Bible that affirm those things. But that is not what the apostle means when he says to press into know Christ. It's much grittier, bloodier, harder— embarrassing and in need of courage than that. Right? I want to give you three salves against the infections of nominalism and, um, and the other thing I said. Zealotry. That's it. Right? The first is that salvation is all one thing. So there's this thing that theologians have come up with called the order of salvation. If you want to say it in Latin, it's the ordo salutis. The Reformed people always say it that way. And it's basically like, here's the order of things God does to save us. So he like, he chooses us from eternity past, and then he calls us and like draws us to himself with conviction. And then he gives us new life and regeneration. And then we become converted, and then we receive justification, and then we're adopted as his children, and then we're sanctified and made holy, and then ultimately we're glorified in heaven. And these, this is the order by which God does things, right? Like if you want a better produced one, there's a, there's a sexy one from somebody's blog, right? Now, here's the thing about this. It's helpful. It's helpful. These are the things God does. It's helpful, okay? Here's the problem. It almost makes you feel like you could talk about these separately. Well, you know, this is election, and then, you know, then I believed. I I was convicted, and then I believed, and like, actually, these are all reformed, so you get regenerate before you believe. That's, that's Calvinism, okay? That's not necessarily, like, this order is disputed right here, okay? But let's just say some people believe that you're called, and then you believe, and then you experience regeneration at the same moment where you're justified and adopted. So let's Let's not get too technical here, but the point is, is that there's this sense where, like, you could talk about your regeneration without talking about your sanctification. It's like you could separate them out. You can't. They're literally all the same thing at the same time. It's everything, all the time, all at once. Christian salvation, in Christian salvation, everything is happening connected to everything else all at the same time. Right? And our culture is really good at a la carte everything, right? That's why we can have so much infertile sex, for example, right? It's like they're not even related. Bonding and pleasure and making humans, they're completely unrelated. They're not completely unrelated. They're completely related. Right? It's like saying, well, we're going to get married because we wanted to have joint bank accounts because it'll be easier that way. That's really all we're doing. You're like, no, marriage is this capacious thing. It's everything all at once, all the time. Like you can't separate the one thing from the other. They're all the same thing. And if you don't, you'd have to reinvent it. Because that's what we actually want is a relationship that's all, everything, always, all the time. Where the things actually do run into each other. That's called love. Same thing, like, it's like you're treating it like an engine. Like, you can't make your truck go with just a crankshaft. There's a bunch of things that have to work together all the time to make the thing have any substance, any reality to it, to actually function. The idea that you could think about your justification or your glorification without reference to what's happening literally right now. Your sanctification, your piety, your pursuit of God, your passion for God, your growth in holiness. Doesn't make any sense, Christianly speaking. 
That's why the apostle can say it's literally in the transformational dying that he will somehow find himself surprised to be part of the resurrection from the dead. There's, the dying and the rising are so fundamentally connected that you can't even think about them separately. And in the dying is how you experience the resurrecting. And then even in his, in his salvation justification, he talks about receiving justification, and then he's like, I want to know it. You're like, wait, I don't know if you can know righteousness. He's like, no, that's what I'm doing. I receive a righteousness. It's from God. It's on, it's on the basis of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. I receive it by faith. And then he says, I want to know it. Meaning, he wants to interact with and live in relationship to the thing that's declared over him because that's what it's for, right? Which is the second thing, which is union with Christ is experiential and relational. Union with Jesus is, it's not like you can't abstract it. Like you can't be like, well, this is the order of salvation and this is the thing we did then. And this. No, it's like you're literally doing it. You're, you're acting in and with the righteousness that is from Christ right now. You are right now experiencing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the present. Paul says, I want to experience the power of his resurrection. And he's not talking about being raised from the dead at that point. Why? Because it says in Ephesians that the power to call you and elect you and draw you and save you and justify you and adopt you are all the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. It's all the same power, the power of the Holy Spirit himself. This idea that like they go all apart or that they're not experiential, they're fundamentally experiential. You're doing them, right? And people understand that now. Like people have moved in that direction. I was, I was watching one of the silly Disney series recently um, with like, it was Ms. Marvel, right? It's like, it's kind of a cool thing because she's, like she's like this Muslim hero, right? But anyway, like she's talking to her mom and she's like, how, you know, how do you know if I'm a good, how do I, she's by veil saying, how do I know if I'm a good person? And the mom says, um, Kamala, good isn't something you are, it's something you do. Which is like true and false, right? But it's getting at something, right? And if you watch the like billion dollar Lord of the Rings thing, where they like made Gandalf morally questionable so they could make everybody think he was um, Sauron, right? And there's this point where like the little hobbit girl's like, you just say you're good. You just decide you're gonna be good and then you're good, right? Which, okay, is a little morally facile, but they had to make a scene out of it while he's fighting witches, right? So like, but the point is, is like, there's this idea that like, the idea that you can say you received a goodness that you aren't even trying to be is the wrong relationship to grace. It's to not realize that grace creates an obligation. And that obligation, when it's grace, to a transformed person is a pleasure. Don't you see? Like, if you love your wife and your wife does something for you, you're obligated to say thank you. But you get to take the pleasure to acknowledge her by saying thank you. You have children, you have the obligation to raise them and to love them. And you get to raise them and love them. The, the, the great thing about grace is not that it doesn't create obligations. That's called cheap or damning grace. The beautiful thing about grace is every obligation that it creates is a pleasure to a transformed person to a person who receives the goodness of God. Every grace-induced obligation is good, is a pleasure, is a privilege. But not if we believe in such a way so that we can keep the flesh and pursue the world. Now, every grace-induced obligation is a personal attack that we're resentful about and we're angry that God would tell us to do it. He's clearly trying to get in the way of our happiness. 
You see, friends, you can, you can believe in Jesus. You can say you believe in Jesus. You can get baptized. You can do a lot of Christian things. You can come and eat yourself sick on pie tonight. You can give to the church. You can do all those things, but listen to me. If you don't believe in Jesus so as to be changed by grace, you're going to be a nominalist or a zealot. You're never going to be, a, you're never going to be pious. You're never going to have a heart to press in. You're never going to have a gra- uh, the, the grace to receive the beauties in your life. You're never going to be able to be the thing for which Christ took hold of you. But, but the pursuit of that is not to try harder and to like white knuckle your anger and to find a new way to really believe and have the world. It's renunciation. You have to let the world You have, to, you have to let it go. Truly. And you have to put the flesh to death. And you have to do that by faith. It's not, it's not winning. It's not like this. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual exertion. But it's not a work. The Bible calls it faith. And for some of you, you need to believe in some ways for the first time in Jesus. This way. For some of you, you just need to renew it. You need some antibiotic ointment on something that's festering where the world and the flesh is creeping back in. For some of us, you just need to thank God and rejoice and reaffirm that you love the obligations of grace. We'll give you a few minutes to do that as we sing. Lord, Lord, we um, thank you for this passage and the way it's meant to confront us beautifully and boldly. We thank you that the apostle said it in such a way that if we're willing to respond in grace, it seems like a great pleasure rather than a great obligation. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come now and you would put in us the great desire to know the knowledge of Christ our Lord, that we would, and the desire to know Christ, and to count everything in this world, to count it or consider it like garbage or rubbish in terms of its holding power on us, so that you can even allow us to handle the things of this world, like it says in 1 Corinthians, as though they were not for us to keep. So we would have a use of them, but a resignation towards them that is truly holy, that is truly life-giving, that's truly good, we pray, that you'd help us to find that place. Help us to never be caught in nominalism or in zealotry, but to really find the piety that comes from the insurance that only you give. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.